Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Gary Bloom. Welcome to On The Sporting Couch, an in-depth psychological profile of an elite sportsman or woman. I'm a psychotherapist, counsellor and broadcaster, and that means I work one-to-one with all sorts of people who are having or have experienced problems in their day-to-day lives. It's sometimes called a talking therapy. I treat people suffering from anxiety, depression, addictive behaviours and relationship issues. Meet Andy Grant, who suffered life-changing injuries while serving for the Royal Marines in Afghanistan after treading on a landmine. He had his right leg amputated in November 2010, but went on to win gold and bronze medals at the Invictus Games for injured servicemen, and then broke the world record for the 10,000 metres for the fastest single-leg amputee. And yet Liverpool fan Andy is probably most famous for his tattoo on his damaged leg, which originally read, you'll never walk alone, and after the amputation simply read, you'll never walk. Meet the man who did walk again, an ex-Royal Marine and world record holder, Andy Grant. I look back and I think I was just so naive. You know, when I was 17 and I joined the Marines, I almost never thought about going to war, Iraq, Afghanistan... The thought of being away from Liverpool for months and maybe years at a time. I almost didn't think of the bigger picture, which again, really stupid to think of. But I think just at 17, the thought of the thrill and the challenge of being in the Marines and wanting to try something new and wanting to do my dad proud, wanting to see if I had what it takes. I think all that just kind of in the priority list came a little bit above leaving Liverpool. You you see, for many people leaving leaving their home city, their home at 17, 18, maybe to go to university or or get a job in a different part of the country, that would be challenging enough. That would be hard enough. But for you, there's a load of other layers on top of that. And the biggest layer, which I'd like to talk about now, is at 12 years old, you lose your mum. A devastating blow to you, which I think has run right the way through your life, Andy. And the implications of that I think are still there today do you think I've got yeah, that right totally yeah yeah 100% one of the hardest times in my life it was um, and I think that's why when I did join the Marines at 17 the thing that brought me to it was a tagline it said 99.99% need not apply and I always joke and say being the cocky 17 year old was at the time I always thought you know yeah I can be the 0.01 and I think it was because of losing my mum at 12 I almost thought you know look if I've been through this and I've got through that I can take on the world, you know, nothing's going to kind of challenge me. 
because the impact of losing my mum it was absolutely huge for me I was such a mummy's boy growing up you know my dad is the type of man he's kind of the old school in the sense of you know very a man of few words and he was out working all the time it was my mum who was doing the school run uh, cooking the tea and looking after us all I was again a real real mummy's boy I remember you know lying in bed and I'd shout through to the bedroom and say good night mum love you and she'd say night son love you and then I'd say I'd always have to have the last words of saying love you and then you know my dad would be in bed saying we used to shut up and go asleep so and then when my mum died I remember for a few nights kind of shouting into my dad night love you and then you could tell it just wasn't that same chemistry there and and to kind of lose that straight away I felt like I, I lost a little bit of my childhood to be honest because I had two younger sisters who I had to help bring up mm-hmm. and um, again just like for example the six weeks holidays just before she passed away I was spending my six weeks holidays going to the hospital to see her every day and was constantly battling with this guilt of you know should I go and see my mum but then she was telling me look you've been here every day this week just go out with your friends so then I'd be out playing football with my friends in the six weeks holidays then thinking I should really be with my mum and you know for a long long time after she passed away I used to always say a prayer every night I'm not religious at all but I'd always say a prayer just you know asking her to look over me and my dad and my sisters and telling them how much I loved her. So your, your mum almost becomes like the god or goddess figure in your life. Yeah. The one that keeps you safe, maybe the chain around your neck. Yeah, and then going on to when I was in Afghanistan, I'd always say a prayer before a patrol every morning. And again, I'm not religious at all, but it was just, I guess it was just my way of trying to keep that communication with her open. So this connection with mum goes on to this very day? Oh, massively, yeah. Yeah, and... You know, if I thought if I thought long and long enough about it now, I'd probably start crying here now here because it's it's something that it, it was so hard for me to lose my mum, and I don't think that connection of um, that vulnerability you have with your mum that you can just be so open and honest. I don't think I've ever had that, you know, since again. My dad's very old school, and you kind of go for a beer with him, and you you know talk about football and this and that. But that kind of vulnerability of telling your deepest darkest secrets to your mum and not being judged, that type of thing, I don't think. I had that with anyone else obviously since she's passed away Andy what's wrong with crying? No listen I, I cry a lot I'm a very emotional person I, I cry all the time to be honest um, but again it's, it's not something I could cry with my dad about I just I don't know I've just not why? got that relationship with him What's the difference? Why can't you why can't you make that connection with your dad? I mean listen I've, I've cried many times with my dad and it's not that I Does, I, he, does he cry with <clears> you? No he doesn't know What does that make? you feel inside when when tears are running down your cheeks and he's looking at you as if to say WTF I mean it's he's not like I mean we have got a great connection and it's not as if he doesn't um, I mean there's been loads loads of times I've cried to him and stuff but again he's not the type that maybe cry with me I think I've seen my dad cry twice in my life I think when did your dad cry Uh, when my mum passed away I remember well he cried a lot then but the kind of two vivid times I remember was after my mum's funeral I, uh, we slept in my nan's that, that night, his mum's, mm-hmm. and I remember waking up in the spare room and just hearing my dad bawling his eyes out in the morning. What did that do to you? I remember really having this moment, thinking, because the funeral was over, and it was kind of like life then starts again type thing, your mum's passed away and you get over it. I always remember thinking, um, it sounds quite stupid, but I always remember thinking, you know, why is my dad crying now? It's kind of done now, my mum's passed away, the funeral's gone. Not that he's not allowed to cry, but you know, I just I remember just feeling a bit wonder why he's crying, and then I kind of bypassed him and went down the stairs, 
and my nan said you know you're gonna have to kind of you know get used to a little bit of this now because it's, it's gonna be hard and I guess for him now as a grown-up I realized that was the realization that he'd lost his wife you know he is someone you know he is a shoulder to cry in that sense and I'm maybe not painting the best picture because we have got a great relationship and he does he is there he, he is a shoulder to cry on but I guess I don't know it's it's a different feeling of having your mum and that vulnerability I always think you know if well I think I think it's important this is not a criticism of dad mm. but maybe dad wasn't able to do the things that you wanted him to do in a very very difficult circumstances that was never the that was never the deck of cards he was dealt no. when he got married to your mum and all of a sudden mum's gone and he's got to bring up this very vibrant excite, excited young boy who has a passion for life so it's not as though dad is is being criticised for not being this and not being that I always think in these situations Andy we have to say he did the very best he could totally and, you know, you, you talk at the end of your book about your dad being, you know, all the heroes that you got, Jamie Carragher and, and Ronnie O'Sullivan, but the biggest hero that you've ever had is your dad. I mean, so have the hand he's, he was dealt, you know, at 36, you know, his wife passes away and he's left with a 12-year-old, a 5-year-old and a 3-year-old. How he's coped and, and stuck with it, you know, I'll I'll never know. He um, Again, now having a daughter myself and not being with my partner, my daughter's mum, I know how hard it is to bring, um, you know, to to raise a little girl on my own, and to know that he had to do it all on his own raising three was is unbelievable. Again, I remember the um, the morning after my mum passed away, and having to tell my two little sisters that you know my mum's not here, and he's sitting there, and we told me little sisters and. My little sister turned round and said, "You know, it's okay. We can still give it a call later." And you're thinking, mm, "Doesn't quite work like that." So, to, you know, for him to have to deal with that as a young man, I don't know how he's done it. And then years later, he sees his son go to war, get blown up, and then have his leg amputated and everything he's gone through. I mean, it's incredible how he's, you know, he can still even manage a smile. So, yeah, I've got the deepest respect for him, and, I, and I'm grateful that we have got a great relationship. But I guess it again. Like you've just pointed out there, it's nothing he's ever done wrong. It's just me kind of missing my mum, you know, wanting exactly. to give my mum a hug, wanting to, you know, get advice from my mum. And, and also from a, a mum's perspective, I'm guessing relationships and things like that that I've had over the years maybe would have went different because you get different advice from your mum and your dad when it comes to a relationship. Let's move on. And thank you for being so honest about, about your mum. Those are not easy emotions for anybody to deal with. Having read the book, um, You'll Never Walk... I'm left with a big question. And the question is this. I still don't understand, having read the book, why you would go through all the training to become a Royal Marine. I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> um, you did it. I mean, I was never this kind of army barmy kid wanting to join the military. I was never even in a cadet, anything like that. Then why, Andy? I always remember doing a, a work placement when I was in school, and I worked in an office, and... I always remember the guy, I think I must have been, you know, 15-year-old moaning that it was really boring. And one of the guys turned around to me and said, well, every job's boring unless you're maybe a lion tamer. <laughs> and I thought, I can't be true. Surely there are other jobs that are different than this mundane kind of day-to-day -day life that he's living. So I guess maybe there was something in there that I thought there's got to be a job that's different. So are you an adrenaline junkie? Yeah, I'm, like, I'm, I, I love to try new things and push myself and... And jumping outside my comfort zone, and I, I do love all that. Why? Why do you need to do that, Andy? What? What? What are you running away from? I guess just to prove myself. 
And I get, I've always thought is it maybe because you know, in school I was one of the only ones who lost the mum when I was a kid, so I was always different. And I don't know whether I've somehow channeled that I'm the always one being different to them being I've got to now do something that's different with my life. You see, I'm going to pick you up on that. And there is a concept, there is a concept with young people called very famous psychotherapists call it the curse of ordinariness young men teenagers from about nine to 15 really can't cope many of them with just being the ordinary joe that life is a bit dull it is about going around your local supermarket it is about having to do homework and it's a bit boring sitting in at night watching the tv and i'm wondering if that curse of ordinariness has afflicted you and the idea of losing your mum just takes the edge off that. You lose your mum, and then you, the next chapter, how do I not be ordinary? Yeah, no, I'd agree with that, yeah. I totally agree with that. And when I was going through school, you know, I got decent enough grades and went on to A-levels and then potentially university, but then just something wasn't quite clicking. And again, that ordinariness of doing A-levels and there was just nothing else I could on the horizon that was remotely exciting to me. I didn't have any great passion for any type of career or what I would have done in university. And then I always remember it was my dad who kind of saw an advert on the TV and he said, you know, why don't you try something like that? And it was just this, you know, young guy running through an assault course and there's guys kind of screaming at him and stuff and it just looked like a huge challenge. So I found out a little bit more about, you know, the information that the Royal Marines had. And straight away, I always, even to this day, the thing that makes me feel so proud about being in the Marines was how different it is to the... It's not the Army, it's not the Navy, it's not the RAF... It's the elite. And that's what made me kind of want to join it. And again, there was nothing like, oh, you, you might have to go to war one day, you're going to have to leave Liverpool. It was more just, this looks exciting. And, and like you say, it's not ordinary. No one else is doing it. You're listening to On the Sporting Couch. And my guest in the studio is Andy Grant, former Royal Marine and Paralympic athlete. I remember the football team packed in when I was about 13 and probably one of the worst things I've done was never ever joined another one I think I was about 14 maybe and then I don't know you get introduced to girls and then maybe I don't know, drinking on the streets and stuff when you get 15, 16 or something and I just never ever joined another football team so maybe that would have been the kind of family kind of organisation and I maybe wouldn't have seeked out to join the Marines I don't know but I guess yeah when I did see that kind of brotherhood and that family of wow we're in this together that was a massive a massive thing for me and it still is now it's what I look back on so fondly of now it, it was everything I thought it would be at any time in your training did you ever think this is just too much for me this is going to push me to a point that I am going to crack not in that sense I mean it, it pushed me into the in, the weird times when I thought you know have I got what it takes because again I was so not military I was the kind of least military guy there initially you know they, I always used to joke they talk about going in the field on exercise and I'd always be thinking you know where's this field we're going to what's what's happening in the field so again you had guys who maybe with their whole life they dreamed about being in the marines and maybe mum uh, sorry dads and uncles have been in the marines I'd had this idea of being in the marines for about six months and, and that was it and suddenly I'm there pitting myself against everyone else to try and be one so there was times where I maybe failed exercises along the way or I didn't score as well as you should have done and I thought you know if I really got what it takes to be a marine but by halfway through the training, I, I couldn't have. There was no way I was going back to Liverpool and saying, "Oh yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't make it." So, so if I've got this right, Andy, you weren't prepared to go back to Liverpool and face the shame 
I was yeah. saying to your family and your friends and your your drinking mates, I've failed. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. And shame is the strongest human emotion imaginable. People will do all sorts of things to make sure they're not shamed. Yeah, hundred percent. I just could not have thought of anything worse. And I remember there was a point and I failed an exercise. I remember crying to my dad. I rang home. I was sitting in Devon. Rang home and was crying to my dad saying, I've failed. I've, I've got to go back two weeks in training. And my dad's saying, it's okay, you know, you'll do it, don't worry. And and then he, he was saying to me, look, there's no shame in, in, in quitting. And he kind of gave me that kind of way out. And But there was no way I was ever going to take him up on that. Because if you'd have failed, had you let your mum down? I don't know whether I was even thinking that then, whether I would have let my mum down. It was more... It might have been that, you know, maybe subconsciously I'm always trying to do these crazy things that I've tried to do, maybe to try and please me more, make her proud, I don't know, but there was just something I was thinking, there's no way, I'm, I've am i told people I'm coming down here to be Marine, when people ask me in a few months' time when they see me out and about, oh, how's the Marines? And I have to say, actually, no, I'm, you know, working in Tesco's now, it didn't work out. There was no way I was, um, I was going down that route. I think that... As we, as we chat further, I'm, I'm sure we will come on to it later on, but I think that's, that's been my downfall in a lot of ways, especially after being injured. And I spoke to a, a mental health nurse, I'm good friends with who I initially became friends with after I was injured, and she kind of alluded to something you said before, that, you know, sometimes life is really exciting, sometimes it's really dull, but for most of the time it's just normal, oh, it's just ordinary. And that's something I've really struggled with later on in life because I found my highs were really, really high, and my lows are really, really low. And I don't think I've, even yet, to be honest, found that balance of just being happy and content. And, and a, a big big problem for me is is now is the kind of ego side of it, which I know is wrong for me, but it's like, it's almost like I can't go and live a normal life now. I feel like it's it's a, my own issue, my own problem that I feel. But because if you went to lead a normal life and lived in, you know, in Walton or, you know, or Crosby, what what would, what would be wrong with that? Maybe like embarrassed, really, or again shame. Again, that word's coming up again. That I've not so made more of it. I've so not... you feel you can't sit in front of the telly with your daughter and a partner and have a couple of beers. Yeah, because it's just it's just it's just shameful. That's just what everybody else does. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, and it's I think as well this kind of notion again coming back to my mum. You know, she passed away at thirty six. You know, such a young age and. So do you feel, therefore, you got to cram as much into Sometimes, your life? yeah. Sometimes. Because you might go at any... How old are you now, Not, not so much that I'd... I'm 30, no. Not so much that I, I'm scared about, oh, I'll have the same fate and die early, but it's almost... I always want to live a life that, you know, she didn't get to live as well. And, and again, hopefully she is looking down on me thinking, you know, he squeezed everything he could out of life. And I want her to... Yeah, it probably is, again, all coming back to me, mum, that I, I want to... I just want to live this life and just, you know, I feel almost guilty if I'm just sitting around not doing anything. You but know? but how, how extreme do you want to go? Because the next the next part of our chat is about being on a battlefield with bullets whizzing past your ears. I mean, is that exciting enough for you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was exciting, yeah. But again, even that, I would have loved to have went down the Special Forces route. You know, I've got a lot of friends who, who after Afghanistan, went down the SAS and the SBS. And, you know, what I... I heard the phrase that chasing the dragon, that kind of phrase of you know it doesn't exist what you're looking for, and 100 percent that's something what I suffer from, and it's again it comes back to the kind of extremes that I feel like I've had, you know I'm only 30 and I feel like I've lived about five lives you to have. be honest, yeah I don't know what normal would be for me now because again I've had so many extremes. Let's zone in on one of the extremes, and the couple of things that strike me um, having read the book is that 
you are trained to be a Royal Marine. You have fears, nightmares about being blown up by a roadside bomb. One of your pals says a few days before you blown up, I dreamt that you, Andy, were blown up. You start talking about your anxiety. You're living with the anxiety of being hurt, seriously hurt in Afghanistan and in Helmand province. How do you hold that anxiety and still do your job? It's just putting it to the back of your head, really. I always tend to find a lot of soldiers will say, oh, you'd always think it's never going to be me. But again, I, I did. I just had this sneaky feeling something wasn't wasn't right. So did you think it is going to be me? Not so much that, oh, yeah, I'm going to die out here or I'm going to get blown up. Or I, I don't know, you were just kind of getting told all the time about what the Taliban could potentially do and things it's, like that. So I'm going to flip this round. If that would have been me... I know that it would have happened to me. I'm the sort of guy that, you know, if, is the one that always gets... the one. If there's a banana skin in the road, I'm the one who's going to... Yeah. St- and that's in my head. I know it's in my head. Yeah. I'm saying to you, did you have that concept as you're entering a battlefield, thinking this... No. Could, you, no. You, this is always something... You, what you're saying to me, Andy, I think, is this is something that happens to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't ever think this is going to be me. But at the same time, I wasn't maybe as confident as other guys in the sense of we're all going to be I, I guess I'd say I was a bit more of a realist you know some guys will put it to the back of their heads and not let it affect them which is what you need to do a lot of the time on the battlefield whereas for me you kind of get into old statistics about mm. one in four of being injured or one in six of losing a life I maybe just took a little bit more notice of those stats and was a bit more wary not that it, I let it affect me and not that it affected other guys and, and not that I thought I'm going to be the one Well I'm going to ask you a question that I I wonder whether anybody's ever asked you. And that mindset that we're discussing now, could it be me, more realistic way of I could be the one in four that gets that's injured, is that mindset unconsciously, is that possible, that led to the instant which you did get blown up? Now, that's a tough question. I'm going to own the fact it's a tough question. But the ones who do put it to the back of their mind, would they have done what you have done? Did, would they have jumped over the ditch that you had jumped? Would they have thought about it first? I'm trying to take you into a really dark area here, Andy, and I know it's difficult. Yeah, it's a tough question to think that. And what what's even makes it even tougher is I've kind of told this story now hundreds and hundreds of times, so I've almost played in my head without it even actually thinking about it. And but I'm to, asking you a different question. To go back and actually think about it, what, with, if I would have done anything differently, if I'd, my mindset had been a little bit different. I don't think I would have because I can't foresee how me thinking, you know, either thinking one extreme, I'm bulletproof, it's never going to be me, or thinking actually this could be me. The job we were doing that day and that particular morning, it couldn't have been done any different. I couldn't have I couldn't have done my job any, any differently. So I don't think the mindset would have came into it in that sense. Would you have thought twice about jumping over the ditch that had been landmined? No, again, because, again, that that, this idea of I had a bad feeling, I think those feelings of being nervous and anxiety was definitely more before I deployed to Afghanistan. I remember breaking down to my dad once beforehand. Once I actually got to Afghanistan, it it kind of subsided a little bit because you would... it's, It's crazy what the human body can do. You just adapt to the every single day you're getting shot at and you're getting blown up and you just become used to it. So it wasn't as as impactful as maybe they were before I went. And then as it comes down to the day I got blown up, 
would I have done everything differently if I was thinking more more about things probably not because there was a job that needed to be done I was the second man in the patrol I was his cover man you know you need to be close enough so you're you know you're kind of his eyes and ears but far enough away so if a bomb does go off you're not going to get injured if I'd been thinking is this going to be me is this going to be me I don't think I could have functioned to be honest if I was always thinking that You've been listening to On the Sporting Couch, a programme about good mental health in sport and beyond. If you're going through a tough time or know someone who is, you might find some useful links at the TalkSport website, www.talksport forward slash sporting dash couch. Or feel free to contact the programme. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Gary Bloom, psychotherapist, and I've been talking to Raw Marine and Paralympic athlete Andy Grant. Another theme that comes through your book is a little bit of anger, if you don't mind me saying so, about the way the Marines were ill-prepared or did not have the right equipment. Have I picked that up right? I wouldn't say it was... Yeah, it probably was anger in some ways, but it was more just... This is not about whether it was a just war or not. Yeah. This is about did you have the tools and the manpower and all the facilities and logistics that you would need to do what you were asked to do? No, I don't think we did, no. That would make me furious. Yeah, and there was times where... The things that kind of made me angry... I say I use the word anger loosely. I don't hear anger in your voice. Then. That's what I mean. It, was, it wasn't It was anger in the sense of, oh, you know, I'm not, I can't believe we're doing this. And it was more just... There's that thing in the Marines, you know, you, you, I was in Yankee Company and the, the slogan for Yankee Company was bash on regardless. And it's that kind of, you know, that's just the way it is in the military sometimes, you know. 
for years and years, people in the military have probably moaned about the government not giving them the right you know, tools for the job. Don't get me wrong, there was times when you're getting asked to go from one comp- compound to another compound across a big, you know, vast open field. And you know you're going to be like sitting ducks when you walk across that field. What am I getting from walking across this field? We're going to be sitting ducks. How is that impacting the security of the UK or how is that helping Af- the Afghanistan locals? And you you start thinking the, about the bigger picture. But, mm. but, but again, if you think too much about that, your head just goes off the game and you're not, you're not doing your own individual skills and drills. You're not being part of that effective section that you're meant to be part of because you're thinking about... You, you suddenly start going on overdrive your mind in the sense of okay if we don't go on this on this patrol across to that compound then we don't get that control of that bit of ground which means it goes on to the bigger picture and the bigger picture and then you suddenly start asking yourself is this a just war are we here for the right reasons so there has to be a point where you might be a little bit dumbfounded or a little bit angry it sounds terrible but you just fall back into that cannon fodder in the sense of look I'm getting told to do and I'm just going to do it you detail very, very clearly what it's like to be blown up physically. I'm going to ask you another question, which you don't answer in the book, not to the same degree. What's it like being blown up psychologically? What happens when you receive such devastating injuries that most times would result in death? But it doesn't result in death. You're, you're treated very quickly by your companions, by fellow Royal Marines, I want to know what it's like to be blown up and what that does to your psyche. Straight away when when I'd been blown up, I, I just knew straight away I'd been blown up. And the first thing, first feeling I remember having was was just fear. I didn't know whether I'd been blown up when I was in the ditch or I'd been blown 100 metres away. It was more kind of panic of where I was because I knew it was pitch black. I hope the guys know where I am. I don't want to be on my own. I don't want to... I don't want the Taliban to come and grab me and take me away and, you know, torch me. It was it was just this fear of, I know I've been blown up, have I been blown away, and now I'm not with my friends anymore. Did you think that you were about to die? No, I don't ever think, no. There wasn't a moment where I thought I was going to die. And that's just down to the guys on the ground, you know, who've done an absolutely amazing job. The guy, James Smith, he was actually an army medic who was attached to us. He placed a tourniquet on my leg, and that's what saved my life, and... I just kept on asking. It was the fear for me was once I knew a tourniquet being placed on my leg, the likelihood is you're going to lose a limb. And I said, you know, have I got my my arms and legs? And they said, yeah, Andy, you have. Don't worry. I said, lads, do not lie to me. Please tell me I've got my arms and legs. Because again, before we went to Afghanistan, if anyone had said to me, you know, you're going to lose a leg, I probably would have said I'd rather die. So just that fear of potentially losing a limb that's all I kept on asking the guys have I got my arms and legs please tell me don't lie to me but in a way they're keeping something back from you quite a lot back from you because there was not a lot left of your right leg no no I mean at one point the leg was going to be amputated from right up up the thigh there was there was a moment when probably 30 minutes or so after being blown up and it's that dark humour of the military you know everyone's having a laugh and t- having a joke and it gets to a point and they basically cut all my clothes off me and I'm lying there in this muddy field and I'm starting to get cold because they've cut all my clothes off me. It's February, it's it's cold out. And again, who knows how close I was to dying. But I remember just being really tired. And, you know, the guys are saying, come on, Andy, keep talking. I'm saying, you know, lads, what do you want to talk about? You know, and they're like, come on, just keep talking. 
And as the helicopter came in just before it did, I had it. Um, I was quite near the base then, and I actually, one of my friends went and got a picture of my mum that was on the bedside on the post next to my bed. So I was kind of with with it enough to kind of go and ask for the picture of my mum and, and various bits. But I never ever thought I was going to die. I was at that point where I was getting really sleepy, and I thought, you know, the best feeling I felt emotionally was once I heard the helicopter come in. You know, a very distinctive noise of the Chinook, the two rotor blades. And that's when I knew I was going to survive. And I just felt this warm feeling inside, just, you know, a fuzzy feeling in, in my stomach that I'm going to survive. Because the kind of unwritten rule was if you get on that helicopter and you're still breathing, the likelihood is you're going to survive. So from going, being very cold, thinking, you know, I'm feeling really tired, really sleepy, there's nothing else to say, you know, we're just waiting for the helicopter to come in. And again, almost giving up, I guess to then that feeling of the noise and, and the warm, fuzzy feeling, the warmth that come from it, it was one of the best feelings I've ever felt. But your personal hell had not <clears throat> finished by any stretch of the imagination. Then you realise that the injuries mean that you've lost your testicles and that means the, your, the opportunity of having kids has gone and you went through a very, very dark stage before the leg was amputated when you were lying in hospital military hospital wondering whether you could recover you have a cage over your leg what was it like then it's probably the darkest i've ever been to be honest I, again that moment when i realized because at the time when i woke up from my coma you know i was bandaged head to toe and the big worry was my right lower leg to try and save the leg and no one told me about the testicles at the time because again i was going in for operations every other day and the onus was on just to try and keep my, keep me calm and you know there's no point adding extra pressure on something we we can't do anything about anyway. And then it was one night when my dad had um, he left visit hours had finished, and I kind of as a man you know put my hand down there to have a feeling and felt something that didn't feel right. And I asked the nurse to kind of if they could get a doctor to check. And then that's when a consultant came round and explained to me that I'd actually lost both testicles in the blast. And I remember my heart just breaking there and then at the time. Because here is a man who can't bear being ordinary. Mm. Most ordinary men can father children. This huge part of your life has been taken away like that. Yeah. And I, that for you is devastating. I lost in that, you know, in that one split second being blown up in Afghanistan. I lost the three things I loved most, you know. My career in the Marines, you know, a job I loved, uh, you know, it gone. The ability to be active and be, you know, outdoorsy. I loved climbing mountains. I loved pushing myself and challenging myself in all these various ways. Again, being different. It was obviously it was looked obvious that I wasn't going to be able to do any of that anymore. And then thirdly, I can't have kids. You know, so the three things got taken away from me in that one split second. And again, I'm only twenty at this at this time. And I, I've, I've tried not in my life to feel feel sorry for myself. But what's the hardest bit that you? Have lost. Now you've lost a limb. What's the hardest of all those things that you have to contend with on a day-to-day -day basis? None of it. Probably, probably not being in the Marines, which which is crazy. So you can cope with not being able to father children. Well, I've got my little girl now, yet yeah, so I feel like that. I, that's We've not done even, that. Yeah, that's not even a thing anymore. Now I've got my little girl who I. So to make it clear to the listeners, your partner at the time, Leone, uh, is impregnated with a donor's sperm and has and conceives and you have a little girl yeah so for me on a day-to-day -day basis now i've got my daughter she's my world 
I've got that kind of normality back. I've got a normal father-daughter relationship with her. Fantastic. So we got a tick there. Tick there. My leg, it doesn't even bother me anymore. I sometimes forget I've got one leg. I can run faster than probably 95% of the population. I, I'm probably more active than 95% of the population. That doesn't hold me back. But the biggest problem of all of those is you go back to just being ordinary Andy and you can't be a Marine. That is the biggest, biggest mess of all of them. Mm. Yeah, and, I, and don't get me wrong, at the time it was not being able to have kids and then it was the leg and then it was the Marines was a was a third, whereas now 10 years on, it's almost gone in reverse because I've got ticks in the other boxes, but being in the Marines anymore, that's one thing that I can never get a tick for. And that that's the thing that breaks me because, again, as soon as I got back from Iraq... I got a Royal Marine Commando tattoo on my arm. The amount of times I've been on holiday and you know, you are in America or something and an American soldier will say, Oh, you know, I worked at you guys, you know, amazing soldiers and that kind of respect and one of the best things about being in the Marines for me was, you know, when someone asked you what you did, I'm a Royal Marine Commando. It's a pretty cool title to say, you know, and then you can't say that anymore. You know, you're not you've not got that brotherhood anymore in the sense that you're seeing guys all the time. And yet there's so many positive aspects and we're gonna move on to the sporting part of your career so you have the amputation we we haven't really talked a great deal about that but then the sporting side of your life suddenly raises up you're not going to be ordinary anymore Andy mm. and the chance to run on a blade and be very fast on as a one-legged amputee and running on running on a blade comes into prospect totally and it was that it was that aspect of being able to run and run quick was that got me to the point of wanting the amputation again I could walk around okay with the leg but for me, you know, the leg just wasn't working as I wanted it to. There was so much nerve damage, I could barely wiggle my toes, move my ankle. I couldn't run, I couldn't play football, I couldn't climb mountains, I couldn't do anything without being in pain. And the thought of just carrying this dead weight around with me for the rest of my life, and again, it was more of a mindset. I was going from being this Royal Marine Commando to being this guy now with a dodgy leg. That didn't really work. It, I just couldn't have lived my life like that. The word to use in your book is, this leg is killing me. Mm. It was killing me in a physical sense, but it was killing my spirit. I wasn't the person I was anymore. I was this person who was moaning, who wasn't happy with life, who was seeing all his other friends in the Marines do various things, and and yet, and I found myself making excuses. And what really actually annoyed me, and it was just such a such a hindrance to my life. It was killing me. It was killing everything about my life. And and in the end, I just became jealous almost of other guys who had amputations who were getting on with their life. I thought there's just got to be more to life than this which led me down the amputation route but then again once I'd had the amputation walking was obviously the first goal and then it was wow I want one of these running blade things you know they look pretty cool I want to be able to run and then I got running and again the opportunities that came my way after being injured you know I celebrated my 10 year anniversary just on the 3rd of February and the kind of overwhelming feeling I had was gratitude because I was just so grateful for all the opportunities that have came my way since being injured you know opportunities that I never would have probably done otherwise and learning to ski learning to surf all as an amputee climbing mountains and, and running things like the Invictus Games acted as a massive springboard to me You're listening to Talk Sport this is On The Sporting Couch my guest in the studio is Andy Grant former Royal Marine and world record holder at the 10,000 metres for a single leg amputee. So I first met uh, Commander Tony Lambert before Iraq, before I deployed to Iraq. 
I was a young 18-year-old, he was a 45-year-old surgeon who'd been in the Navy 20-odd years, and we just happened to be sitting next to each other and formed this friendship, and then our friendship then followed followed for the next few years. When I was then blown up in Afghanistan, he was you know, on hand as a friend initially just to kind of talk me through, and then when it came to have the leg amputated, I rather cheekily asked him to do the amputation, which was a big call for him because, you know, it's not often a friend asks you to amputate the leg. It was a big call for him to, to step up to the plate, which he did, and he became the surgeon who amputated my leg. And we just became great friends over the years, and I think that bond that we have, you know, we go and watch rugby together, drink beer together, and go surfing together. And he's just been an amazing, amazing friend, like I say, a father figure, and someone who I love and respect very much, And which is an unusual relationship for a surgeon and a patient to have, because, again, a lot of surgeons... You know, do the job, go home, and that door's closed. Whereas Anthony, or the doc as I call him, he's kept that very much open. And if I ever need him, he's on the end of the phone. And yeah, I can't thank him enough. And the doc inadvertently makes you world famous after altering your tattoo. Explain what happened. He did. He's from Plymouth, but I think he secretly might be a Man United fan or an Everton fan. But when I was 16, I had a live bird with You'll Never Walk Alone tattooed on my leg like I think most Liverpool lads do of a certain age and then when I've obviously had the leg amputated he explained to me that for him to create a decent stump for me he would have to pull the skin round from the back of the leg so I can run and play football and do all the things I want to do so after I woke up from the coma uh, from the operation he come round to see me and he said you know Andy how's it going I said yeah I'm good thanks doc please tell me how did the operation go he says I've got good news and I've got bad news and my heart just sunk thinking something had went wrong the good news was, he said, is the operation went really well. The bad news was that, he said, as he'd pulled the skin round from the back of the leg, he'd inadvertently cut off the word alone. So the tattoo now reads, you'll never walk, which um, we talk about in the Marines, some, having something called commando humour. And that was uh, definitely a time when I needed a little bit of that. I've seen on social media, the photos kind of, it's got thousands and thousands of likes. Nothing back to me, but you just see it pop up. And I've seen it on Dutch television, comedy shows and... And I've met people, and when I've told them that story, they've said, is that you? <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, he has made me well famous in that sense. What's it like to run in a major tournament, the Invicta Games, for injured servicemen? Invictus Games was unbelievable. It made me feel like a rock star for, you know, for the for the week it was on. And you're not going to say next, don't you? It's not ordinary. Exactly. And it, it, was, it was an amazing, an amazing opportunity that we had to take part, and that was the first one. And to be in London and we're walking around getting asked for selfies and signing autographs for people, it was absolutely crazy. We're on stage in front of 10, 15,000 people. You know, I'm running around a track winning winning the gold medal and there's hundreds and hundreds of people screaming for you to do well. You did, I felt like a, a superstar, you know, a footballer, an athlete. It was, it was unbelievable. And again, that acted as a massive springboard for me, for future challenges, because again, I wanted to hold on to it and grasp that feeling. Of you know, but for me as well, it, it was about about being competitive again. You know, I I was there. I didn't just want to make up the numbers. Again, the, the banter and the rivalry we have between like the army and the navy and the RAF. I was turning up as a marine. I wasn't okay. Yeah, I was an injured marine, but you know, I'm I'm competing against injured army guys, injured navy guys. I wanted to make sure that the marines were still, you know, the best. So it's, that competitiveness was coming back. That sporting. You know, drive that I once had was was well and truly coming back, 
and it's done a lot of good for me and a lot of other people at the Invictus Games. But two gold medals and a bronze, that's not good enough for you, is it? You want to go further than that, mate? Well, yeah, well, a lot of my mates went on to, you know, look at the Paralympics. But unfortunately for me, the longest distance in the Paralympics for a single baloney amputee was 400 metres. Mm-hmm. And I'm a bit more of a long distance runner than that. So I'd done a bit of Googling and found out about a Canadian guy who could run 10,000 metres in 37 minutes, 53 seconds. And he was the fastest in the world. So straight away that became my next kind of my next challenge. And when I did eventually break that, the funny thing was I'll come back to the kind of training around it, but when I actually broke that and I ran it in thirty seven minutes seventeen seconds. The funny thing was was I never I didn't break that and get this feeling. I didn't get the feeling I'm the fastest single leg amputee in the world. The best thing about it for me was I had mates out in the Marines texting me saying, Mate, you could you could be a a physical training instructor in the Marines, you've got the time to go for the aptitude test to be, you know, personal training in the Marines. And for me to know that the kind of the acceptance of that brotherhood, that family, that actually, you know, I'm not actually the fastest amputee in the world. Well I am, but it's that's not the tag I was after. It was after kind of, you know, lads had served with the family reach out to you and say you're one of us. Yeah, exactly. That means so much to you, doesn't it? And the fact that they they invited me down to where I started my Royal Marine journey and invited me to a sportsman's dinner mm-hmm. and the sergeant's mess, and I was awarded something called the Core Colours, which came which came in 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 a Royal Marine vest and a Royal Marine tie. And again, that for me meant more to me than anything else to have that acceptance of the Royal Marines. You know, them saying, you know, yeah, we know you're not a Marine anymore, but you know the values that you've upheld since leaving the ethos that you've kind of still got within the fact that you've just run a six minute mile on a running blade is incredible you know don't you ever forget that you know you are a Royal Marine What's your greatest achievement Andy? Getting into the Royal Marines or breaking the world record as a single leg amputee at 10,000 metres? I think what I would doubt me greatest achievement ever to be honest is, is the 10k record as a single leg amputee. It's more important to you than getting into the Royal Marines? Yeah it is yeah because you know, it was tough getting in the Marines, etc., and, and everything like that. But it was almost this felt like a bit of a, uh, you know, a Brucey bonus. I've not only broke this 10k record, but I've also had the acceptance of of the Royal Marines as well. And is that enough for you now? You know, it is in many ways. It is in many ways. But the fear I've got now, and again, it's something I, I do need to work on. Is that chasing the dragon? Because my biggest fear now as a motivational speaker, and I guess in my own personal life, is that. I've always said, you know, I, I don't want to sound like Uncle Albert off when he feels nurses. You know, where he's during the war, constantly talking about, you know, telling stories of the past. I do want to constantly try and redefine myself and, and, and show people that I'm not a one-trick pony and keep on pushing the boundaries. But hang on, hang on. You've already proved you're not a one-trick pony. You've, you've, you've got into the Marines. You've seen action in Afghanistan. You've had an incredible journey recovering. And then you become an athlete. And then you break the 10,000 metres record for a single leg amputee and you win two golds and a bronze at the Invictus that ain't a one trick pony pal I am really proud of all those achievements again bringing it right back to me mum it it is probably this kind of this almost loss of trying to fill the void of of not having something and and maybe you know do her proud do myself proud do my dad proud I don't know but what would be enough for you now suppose we meet we were to meet in 10 years time happiness you know what I I really strive for lately is uh, this feeling of content I'd love to feel content, that's, and I don't know how how that's gonna how that's gonna come. Whether it's gonna be at the end of a race one day, or I don't know. But so that's that's the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for you. Yeah, 
to be able to sit and feel content with what I've done with the people in my life and and to and to just sit there and be yeah, you know, I don't feel I need to do anything today. How far are you away from that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? Close, miles away? I think quite far to be honest. Yeah, I'd like I'd like to I'd like to be married and you know, have a happy home and have, you know, my daughter around and just I don't know, that kind of it sounds really old and boring I guess, but just to have that have that you know, that feeling of not wanting to be different anymore and just have that feeling of maybe sitting there on a on a Wednesday night watching some TV and you know having that normality again because again I feel like I've not had that normality since I was 12 it's very hard for me just to sit around and and not have my mind running racing a million miles an hour I'm always thinking about things to do challenges to do and I think so the end goal for me would be to have that content because I've, I've had money I've went through gambling things in the past I've had money I've lost money I've had motivational talks with thousands of people I've I've done the small talks I've done different organisations I feel like I've done so much and nothing else has brought me that content the end goal for me would, would to do something or to get to a point in my life where I think actually you know what I can just rest for a bit now last question I'm going to read you the last sentence of your book mum you've given me enough love in the 12 years we had together to last me a lifetime I hope I've done you proud what do you feel when I read those words to you? I feel like I want to start crying. <laughs> She's always in my mind and my heart, and I wouldn't have done half the things and achieved half the things I have without the impact she had on my life and without the love she gave me. And I guess that's probably one of the reasons why I can't sit still and I want to constantly do things to. So she hopefully is proud of me, I guess. Andy Grant, I've loved reading your autobiography, You'll Never Walk. It's been a greater privilege to meet you here. Many thanks for being on The Sporting Couch. Thanks very much for having me. You've been listening to On The Sporting Couch, a programme about good mental health in sport and beyond. If you're going through a tough time or know someone who is, you might find some useful links at the TalkSport website, www.talksport.com. Or feel free to contact the programme. I'm Gary Bloom, psychotherapist, and I've been talking to Raw Marine and Paralympic athlete Andy Grant. I hope you've enjoyed the programme, and please remember, there's no such thing as good health without good mental health. Goodbye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.